0: Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of
1: America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with the fifth episode of BOA Audio Season 4 and the 100th edition of Benall of America Audio in the seasonal format. Quite a milestone. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Before I say anything about that, I want to wish all of our great American listeners a fantastic Thanksgiving holiday. Hopefully, you're digging into this episode as part of your kickoff to the holiday season. Now, how about this Milestone 100th episode? I really want to uh, just extend a thanks to all the audience. I do this program in service to the audience. You are the driving force to the program. As the song here at the beginning said, I'm yours. I'm running this show at the behest of all the great BOA Audio listeners They are the lifeblood of this show. They are you, the audience. Thank you so much for sticking with us for so long. Episode 100 of the Seasonal Format, when I started way back three years ago to interview Jim Mars at the beginning of Season 1, I could not even imagine that I'd be sitting here talking to you three years later on Episode 100 with George Knapp, just amazed that this little rinky-dink underground audio sideshow could make it to 100 episodes, and uh, I thank the audience for that. I'll reflect more on that and uh, babble on towards the end of the program, because right now I know what you want to hear. You want to hear the incomparable George Knapp on BOA Audio, helping us to celebrate the 100th episode. It is going to be quite a conversation. I tried to cover all the bases with George Knapp, hit a number of different topics. We're going to discuss the evolution of his journalism career his investigation into Area 51 and the subsequent fallout in ufology, his take on present-day UFO studies, reflections on his research into the Skinwalker Ranch, and the latest news on his coverage of the Needles UFO case from earlier this summer. It is definitely going to go down as one of the classic episodes of BOA Audio, I can already tell you that. It is George Knapp talking about the UFO world from a unique perspective that very few people in the whole esoteric universe have a major big name in the world of mainstream journalism who has made a serious mark in the world of ufology as well. For those of you who are unfamiliar with George Knapp, let me enlighten you to his background. George Knapp was born in Woodbury, New Jersey and raised mostly in Northern California. He graduated from high school in Stockton, California, earned a bachelor's degree in communications from West Georgia College, and later earned a master's degree in communications from the University of the Pacific. He moved to Las Vegas in 1979 and was hired in 1981 by KLAS-TV as a general assignment reporter. He has won the Mark Twain Award for Best News Writing from the Associated Press nine times. In 1990, his series on UFOs was selected by UPI as Best in the Nation for Individual Achievement by a Journalist. In addition to that, he has won 14 Emmy Awards. He's also the co-author of Hunt for the Skinwalker with Colin Kelleher and hosts Coast to Coast AM on the third and fourth Sunday of every month. He's so prolific, he's such a big name, he really doesn't even have his own website, so I guess you could say go to the Coast to Coast website or go to KLAS-TV in Las Vegas for more information on George Knapp. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on October 1st, 2008. George Knapp on BOA Audio Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Ben All of America Audio. We have a really exciting show here on tap for you. It will be our 100th episode ever of VOA Audio, and I wanted to have a really big-name guest on and someone who we don't hear too often from uh, as far as on the guest end of things, so it's exciting to have him here on the show. He's an investigative journalist for KLAS-TV in Las Vegas. He is the host of Coast to Coast AM on Sunday nights, the third and fourth Sunday nights of the month. He's a winner of 14 Emmy Awards. At last check, it may be more by now. I'm not positive, but I think it's 14. He is the hugely respected Mr. George Knapp. George, welcome to Been All of America Audio. Thanks for coming on the show for our 100th episode.
0: I'm honored. Thanks, Tim.
1: And uh, I should note uh, here, full disclosure, I do have the pleasure of working with you every fourth Sunday at the Coast to Coast AM website. It's great to be able to work with you. It's been just awesome to... Uh, See how you do things, and and be able to uh, you know work under you in the coast to coast realm. So it's been it's been fun.
0: Well, thanks. The feeling is mutual. You do a great job. Thanks,
1: thanks. I appreciate that. Well, I guess uh, let's start out with a little bit of the bio, the background. Uh, talk a little bit about your evolution as a TV reporter, how you got into the industry and stuff like that. I was surprised to see that when you moved to Las Vegas, you were a cab driver for a while, which was really surprising and cool. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that, your bio, your background, you know, bring people up to speed.
0: Well, I was a, uh, I was a debate coach uh, in college and grad school. I uh, was a director of forensics at University of the Pacific, uh, which is in Northern California, a great school, uh, probably the youngest uh, major college uh, debate coach in the country. I was did that for two years while I was getting a master's, and then I went to UC Berkeley and was their coach for a year. And I had a choice to make about uh, what the future was going to be. And um, I, I didn't really want to uh, pursue a Ph.D. I wanted to make some uh, uh, lo- at least a decent living and, and get out of poverty. And uh, I met these guys, these bartenders from Las Vegas who had moved to the Berkeley area. And they were the craziest people I'd ever met, uh, real characters and uh I got to know them and they said, "Hey, we know somebody in television in Las Vegas and uh we think uh, you know you could be uh you're a natural. I mean, yeah, the, the writing and the speaking and stuff like that." So, what do you think? And I said, "That sounds good." So, I moved on a whim uh, with a girlfriend, moved to Las Vegas, didn't know anybody, and uh I met uh, met a guy who was when I got here a, a basically a a mob guy. And uh, he said, "Well, you're looking for a job. I can help you as a cab driver get a job as a cab driver if you pay this uh, old union official a couple hundred bucks, which I did. And so I drove cab for a little while, and it was hilarious because I was, had only been in town for basically two days. I didn't know where anything was. <laughs> yeah, I was I was not a very good cab driver. At the same time, I went to go see this TV guy that the bartenders had recommended, and he was a Production assistant, cameraman at the PBS affiliate, hardly a TV honcho ready to start me on my career. Uh, so I walked in and asked for a job, and he looked at me like I was crazy and and uh, uh, said, well, we'll see what could come up. I kept going back there and bugging him in between uh, shifts as a cab driver. Eventually, they hired me as sort of an assistant carpenter where I do odd jobs, mix cement, move boxes. Then they let me be a uh, a studio cameraman for the news show. And, uh, and then they let me write, start writing some spots and things of that sort. And, uh, I would go back every day into the news department and read the files on mob stuff and, uh, you know, Las Vegas history and things of that sort and bug the news people to the point where they finally said, fine, we'll let you shoot some stories. So they gave me a camera, sent me out to, to do a couple of stories. And I did a fairly good job for not knowing what the hell I was doing. And, uh, you know, eventually they hired me, gave me a job as a cub reporter these were two weekly news shows not like a nightly newscast or anything we yeah. did think pieces and fun stuff and issues and uh and a couple of months after i started working for the uh, uh the news department the anchor man quit and they opened up a competition for the job and i got it and i you know i'd been 6 months in the industry and i was anchoring a couple of newscasts and and i came to the attention of uh the the main newscast in town the, the behemoth of the local news market klas they hired me away, um, gave me time to grow, made me a general assignment reporter. Eventually, I became an anchor guy, and uh, for a couple of different newscasts, and really liked it. I mean, this is a great news town, and and I took to it. And uh, and then I left for a couple of years to pursue some UFO stuff, some private uh, uh, communications work. I came back uh, and have been on the I team uh, since 1995, and and have done pretty well.
1: At the at the risk of being cliched, it sounds like almost like the American dream, where you worked your way up to uh, where you're at today, which is great. You know, either good. the
0: American dream or the Peter Principle. I'm not sure which one. <laughs>
1: there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, of course, this show is you know centered around the esoteric and the paranormal stuff, which is why we have you on the show. We want to talk about that kind of stuff. And of course, you're really well known for the 8990 investigation into Area 51. Which would you say that was your initial entrance into studying UFOs and the UFO phenomenon? Very much so. Okay. The first question about that whole thing is, uh, what was the reaction like to your work looking into Area 51 from your media colleagues, because as we know, uh, you know, the UFO phenomenon often gets painted with the brush of, you know, being kind of silly or uh back-end of the news type stuff.
0: Well, that certainly has been my experience. I'll just back up a little bit. In 1987, I was hosting a little uh, public affairs show, half-hour public affairs show, the kind of thing that airs at 6 o'clock in the morning on a weekend that nobody watches, and my guests are city councilmen and government officials. And, uh... And uh you know it was fine for what it was. and a guy named John Lear walked into the TV station, and uh, of course your your listeners probably know who that know that name. Mm-hmm. John had been uh, had a certain amount of credibility with our station because he had helped us break a really big story. He'd worked with my mentor, a guy named Ned Day, who was our managing editor, and they had broken a story about the existence of the f one seventeen the Stealth Fighter, which had been tested and developed out at area fifty one. So John, uh, you know, who was a desert rat, he's out there taking photos and dodging security guards, and he had told us about it. We broke the story, got into a little bit of trouble with the military, but he had some credibility. So after he broke that story, after he had run for the state senate here, he came back with a pile of UFO documents, MJ-12 stuff, uh, government, uh, reports, things of that sort, and dropped it on the desk of my boss, Ned, um, and Ned was having no part of it. Uh, I can't do this stuff. People will think I'm crazy. I was eavesdropping about it, and I heard John talking about it, and I said, hey, let me see that stuff. And I read through a pile of it. I thought, well, this is kind of interesting, and I put him on this show on the record that you know nobody watches. And the response was incredible, and I had him on a second time, and the response was even bigger. My phone's ringing off the hook, and I'm thinking, well, this is a subject that sort of touches the pulse of the public in a way that I had not predicted. So I started doing some research, and John helped me in that regard, gave me the documents, piles of stuff. I started reading the the essential books and getting a handle on on the topic and who was credible and who was not, and thinking to myself, well, at some point, I'm going to maybe do a a series or something on this, especially since John had hinted that he knew something about Area 51. I had him on a third time on the show, and he brought a guy named Bill Cooper on, and to my uh, lasting shame. Uh, kind of a crazy guy, and Cooper at the time was telling a fairly, uh, restricted story, you know, not as grandiose as it came, became later. And, uh, the response from the audience again was really big. And in this show, John mentioned that he knew some guy who was going to work at Area 51, that there were flying saucers out there. I said, well, I need to meet him. And it didn't happen for a couple of months. A few months later, May of 1989, I was anchoring our five o'clock news at the time and, and we have a, a, a daily interview segment a face to face kind of a thing and our guests canceled. And so at the last minute, I called John, Hey, can I get your saucer guy on? And he arranged it. We sent a live camera up to his house and we interviewed uh, the person that would later became known as Bob Lazar. And he, at that time, he used the pseudonym Dennis, which was the name of his boss at the Area 51 S4. And he told the story that we all know now. Uh, you know, at that time, uh, Few people outside of Nevada who hadn't worked at Area 51 had ever heard of it. Now, of course, it's known all over the world. So I met Lazar. We, after that interview, we, uh, put him through his paces, asked him a bunch of questions, took my news director up there for this uh, very intense session where we, uh, grilled him on everything we could think of. And it sounded really interesting and credible. So we figured, well, what the heck? We'll, we'll produce maybe a five part series, something like that. And for the next eight months in 1989, I worked on it, trying to verify Lazar's background and and uh, uh what we could of his story we produced a series a 10 part series in November of 1989 it was the biggest it remains the highest rated local series ever produced in Las Vegas we produced made it into a 2 hour special which has gone all over the world in bootleg copies and and uh, my life has never been the same since of course uh you know the public couldn't get enough of it the ratings were or through the roof and to this day everywhere i go i mean that's what people talk to me about they stop me in a in the grocery store and restaurants and bars and they ask me about area 51 ufo's what's the deal on lazar how's he doing and, you know and i wish i had a piece of it i wish i had uh, copyrighted the name of area 51 or something because <laughs> i'd be a wealthy man i mean you know movies and tv shows and and since that time You know, every major news organization in the world has been out there beaten the path to Area 51's door to see whatever's going on. And a lot of them made fun of it, but a lot of them took it seriously. I mean, ABC, NBC, CBS, 60 Minutes, Dateline, uh, Washington Post, Time Magazine, Newsweek, Larry King, Geraldo, it runs the gamut. Of course, all that uh, notoriety for me. Uh, came with a price, and it's exactly what you were sort of hinting at, is that while the public can't seem to get enough of this stuff, it drives my journalism colleagues crazy. They can't resist uh, every attempt to take a shot at it. And I don't know if it's jealousy or what, uh, or a lot of them have suggested it brings disrepute to the profession, which I dispute. I mean, I have always approached this like any other news story. You uh, you know, separate wheat from the chaff, things that you can't confirm, you toss out. Uh, the nonsense you toss out, and about 90% of it, as you know, Tim, is nonsense. But, yeah. you know, we uh, we pursue it like a news story and, and I still would take the shots. I mean, uh, every time a, a, a radio DJ here in Las Vegas would run out of uh, belch, barf, and fart jokes, they'd do something about me. Um, you know, there was a couple of guys who wrote a song to the tune of Fool on the Hill. It was the boob on the tube, and it was making fun of flying saucers. It was very funny. In fact, I even did a, 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 an on-air story about it. The Las Vegas newspaper, uh, the Review Journal, which is the biggest paper in our state, um, has had a lot of fun at my expense. Um, you know, Lazar got into some trouble with some hookers, and it was uh, the, the column was about little green hookers from outer space. Um, there was there were three uh, editorial cartoons that uh, that have had me as a character in them. The first one was a, a, a character of me uh with a butterfly net chasing a fly and saucer. There was one that was entitled uh the Marshmallow Head Chronicles and it had a couple of alien hitmen, E. T. Hitmen, coming to Earth and they're standing there with their ray guns looking at a, a a pair of uh gasoline pumps and they're thinking, which yes, of course they are Earthmen, but which one is George Knapp? Was, <laughs> I, did, I did a series about uh about abductions and the alleged uh medical procedures examination procedures that come along with those stories and the column in the rj was they were kidnapped by aliens ha 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 and they dubbed me a grand mullah in the church of cosmic proctology because of my descriptions of of these uh, (laughs) medical experiments and and then there was a guy at the media columnist who wrote that when i did a second series on ufos boy people are rushing home to see george's ufo reports not because they're interested in uh, little green men but because they want to be there at that moment when he finally goes bull goose loony on the air, his mouth foaming, et cetera. Very funny, ha-ha. Now, I'm not a, a thin-skinned guy. I can take it. I'm in a, a high-profile job. It comes with the territory, and I have a sense of humor. In fact, I have all three of those editorial cartoons on my wall. But, um, you know, it, it just strikes me as it's a lot easier to make wisecracks about this stuff To break out the same old lines, you know, writers all over the country, and you've seen it, Tim. Yeah. They write the same stuff again and again and think they're really, really clever. They'll make a joke about an E.T. beanie and beam me up and uh, E.T. phone home, and and they'll pick out the weirdest person at the UFO conference, the person who says they're from Venus, and make fun of them. Mm -hmm. Ha, ha, ha. It's a lot harder to go ahead and do the actual work. You know, to go out there at like Area 51 and dodge the security guards and, and deal with the dust and, and the long hours to wait and see what what uh, pops up in the sky, to interview the witnesses, to follow the paper trail, to try to to separate the wheat from the chaff, and there's a lot of chaff, you know, in this uh, in this field. So that's the only part that bothers me. I you know I expect it, I understand it, I just uh, don't uh, appreciate it. You know, and it's you know we're beyond that stuff. This yeah. topic is serious, it's important, and, and, uh, it's amazing to me that there aren't more mainstream journalists in the country who pursue it because it's a big story. If, if this is confirmation, you know, if we could ever get it, if, uh, we get indisputable proof, it'd be the biggest story in history. I mean, it changed change the world.
1: Absolutely. You must have felt a little bit vindicated because you got, in 1990, you won the, uh, the UPI award for, for the Area 51 story you're talking about. Now, winning that sort of award kind of flies in the face of what people in ufology, and we'll sort of get into people in ufology in a minute, but that sort of flies in the face of their idea of a whole media cover-up if you're winning awards for your Area 51 coverage. And you kind of talked a little bit about how uh, you think it might be not necessarily, it might be a personality-driven cover-up in a sense, you know, uh, where it's jealousy or fear of looking into the subject or laziness or what have you instead of some kind of government cover-up. What's your take on the whole cover-up scenario that that percolates in ufology?
0: Well, I'll I'll tell you about the media part of it to begin with. I mean, I've heard that scenario uh, advanced many times over the years that somehow the media are under the thumb of the government and they tell us what to say, and I, I just don't see it. I mean, nobody's told me what I can say or write or or air at any point nobody's told me to shut up uh, we're watching you that well there have been some threats but we'll talk about that more a little bit down the line but uh, you know i suspect that it is more uh, a matter of how people think they're going to be viewed by their colleagues yeah. and that's just never uh, been a consideration with me i don't care i don't write stories for other journalists i write it for the public and so it's never bothered me but i know that there's a lot of that stuff i mean 48 hours that was a great uh, news program, and they they were going to do a UFO show. And and uh, I learned from some of the producers that the, the correspondents, the on-air people, it just drove them nuts. You know, these are professional, long-term broadcasters working for a network in a great job. They hated covering this stuff because it's a it's not the kind of thing that advances your career. It you know, I, I it, it certainly had consequences on mine. It just so happens I work for a really great news organization, and they trust me. But uh, there are consequences, which is why you don't see a whole heck of a lot of people like me over a long period of time working for mainstream media who cover this stuff. In fact, I don't know of anyone else really that's done it quite as long. Yeah, I don't think that there is a a uh, an enforced cover up involving media. I mean, there are big media companies, and maybe at some level that I have never seen, there's something like that. But I think it's more a function of, you know, the Robertson panel and the policy that was adopted a long time ago. You know about that report, 1952. Those guys are convened by the CIA, and they sit in a room, and they look at evidence about UFOs for a couple of days, and they conclude, well, we're pretty sure that UFOs are not a threat to national security, but the reporting about UFOs is a threat. It could be exploited, so we advise a policy of debunking, of uh, stripping – the uh, UFOs of their aura of mystery, of uh, and that's when the laughter curtain uh, emerged, and it still exists. People don't come forward uh, with their stories because they worry about how people would react when, in fact, most people, when you get them in a private conversation, they they can't get enough of it. They're very interested, not to mention the millions and millions of people who have either seen something themselves or have family members who have. Public wants it. Uh, The media is not crazy about it, but I don't think it's an edict from the government that that causes that kind of coverage.
1: Okay, and it seems like in the last year or so that the media attitude has sort of changed for the better. We've seen a lot more of the Larry King specials. I think there's been like seven maybe in the last year where previously he had maybe done three in in the last decade. And with the Stevenville story and previously the O'Hare story, it seemed like they got a lot more positive coverage, let's say, you know, not as not as uh, ridiculed coverage. So you think it's changing for the better as far as media coverage of the UFO phenomenon?
0: Well, in the last year, ex- exactly what, as you said, it it has changed. Uh, I hope that, you know, like the Chicago Tribune when they did that, uh, that uh, O'Hare stuff. I mean, they had a bigger response to that than anything they'd ever done. Uh, I don't think that they followed it up very much, which is too bad. But on television, I can tell you, you know, Larry King, I don't know what the heck he's smoking these days, but uh I, I'm glad that he's doing all this coverage. The thing is, like the History Channel has done so many shows and the Discovery Channel and A&E and all those. I don't do those things anymore because it always ends up the same. You know, they they feel some sort of a. Journalistic obligation that they've got to give the last word to, to the debunkers, no matter what promises the producers make. Well, we're going to blow the lid off this thing. This is going to be great, and we're really going to go after it. In the end, they cave. They they can't get enough of the ratings boost that comes with the topic, and it always does. And they always cave. Yeah. You know, they'll give uh, the, they'll give some skeptic, some debunker who doesn't know crap about the subject the last word and let them say something that is easily answered but the answers don't come. So that's why I quit doing that stuff and uh um you know I'm glad to see some serious interest. That ABC special uh, what 2 years ago, that was that was pretty pretty sad. The uh, the most recent one again, I, I look at it and I think, well, I'm glad they're doing it, but this is a network news organization and this is the best they can do. I mean, it's uh you know, an inch an inch deep. Yeah. The look at Stevenville, the look at uh, some of the other cases you mentioned.
1: To move away from the media aspect of it, let's talk a little bit about your first impressions when you uh, first sort of started dipping your toe into the into the world of ufology. Not not the UFO phenomenon, mind you. It's kind of like two different worlds. There's the UFO phenomenon that is pretty serious and and uh, and it's most likely real, and there's the world of ufology, which is in and of itself kind of a circus. And uh, I was lucky enough to be at the fourth annual crash retrieval conference where you gave the keynote address. Uh, it was out in Vegas. It was in 2006. I was in attendance at that. I really enjoyed your keynote address, and you talked a little bit about the 89 MUFON convention and Bill Moore's infamous speech there and John Lear's mutiny and trying to start a different MUFON convention while in Vegas there. I guess talk a little bit about your impression of ufology as you got into it.
0: Well, you know, I was uh, I was really a rookie at the whole thing and, and had never been exposed to one of those kind of conventions. So right after I had started, made the decision that we were going to go ahead and pursue this project and put some time into it and figure it out. And I'm cocky enough to say, well, look, you know what this topic needs. It needs a good investigative reporter. I'll I'll give it six months and I'll wrap this thing up, you know, I'll get to the <laughs> bottom of it. And here it is, you know, twenty years later and I'm still trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Little did I know that, you know, it was just by luck that the uh the MUFON International Symposium was here in Las Vegas that very same year, just uh, two months after I decided to go after this thing. And it was lucky, I guess, in some respects that it was one of the most uh, important and uh revelatory uh UFO events that MUFON has ever had because of all the turmoil that Bill Moore and others uh, set off. Uh, the side note of that is that John Lear, who I would got to know, he got, gets hooked up with uh, Bill Cooper and a couple of other guys. They were like ready to stage a revolt uh, at this conference and, and have their own side conference and, and uh, siphon off all the attendees. It was an interesting time. I didn't understand the significance of Bill Moore's uh, statements when he made them. I, I did later. It became clear. The fact that he had worked for, admitted working with government intelligence agencies, ostensibly for noble purposes—to get inside and figure out who's doing what to whom and why—and figuring he would uh, be able to crack the mystery from the inside, which is—it's really a good intention and a good plan. I suspect that Bill probably got used, as a lot of us have over the years. Uh, But that was my introduction, and I I, I realized, boy, this is this is pretty crazy. I mean, the um, the backbiting. And the turf wars and the incestuous nature of the whole thing, combined with the fact that, you know, ufology is such a lofty sounding term, but, you know, it doesn't mean a heck of a lot. I can understand why ufologists want to be considered as scientists. And in some respects, they act like mainstream scientists in that they they uh, stab each other in the back and, and are not always honest. And this particular field seems to attract so many people who are just flat out nuts. And they, uh, plus the, uh, the consumers of this information who have no internal, uh, filters at all. They buy almost everything, you know, that is said. I mean, the Area 51 story was fantastic by any definition. The claims made by Lazar by themselves. But within a couple of months of me putting that out there, Everybody wanted a piece of it. They own, all, all, uh, seem to use, use it for their own ends. I mean, you had the hopelessly gullible saucer nuts who think that everything that was in the sky out there, every bit of light, every craft, every plane was a UFO from, from some other planet. You had, uh, blatant profiteers who, uh, who moved in, started doing tours out there. They would tell these stories that, oh yeah, the uh, Area 51 is controlled by aliens from the planet Krondack. And I'm not making that up. That's, <laughs> that was the actual term. Aliens from the planet Krondack are in league with our government and they've cut a secret treaty with the government uh, and they're um, mixing up uh, vats of human body parts to create hybrids and all this stuff. All the milk carton children uh, who disappear across the country, that's where they go to Area 51 and you know, all kinds of really crazy stuff that has no foundation in reality at all, except for people's imagination, and it would go over, and people would sell tapes and books, and I thought, man, you know, I I can understand why, to some degree, a mainstream journalist would be deterred by jumping into that, because it takes, there's a learning curve, it takes a while to figure out what's real and what isn't, who can be trusted and who can't, and, uh, and to this day, I mean, you know, these uh, these flame wars that go on on the Internet and you, anything you say, you, you get attacked. And, uh, uh, you know, I I am all in favor of, you know, putting ideas out there to be tested in, in the marketplace of uh, of uh, common discourse. But this is unlike any other any other pursuit that I could imagine.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's a strange world. It's disappointing in a lot of ways because I, I was kind of, you know, idealistic like how you said earlier about, you know, you'll break the case in six months. I was idealistic like that, too, when I first got into this. And then after a while, you're kind of like, uh, you know, walking you on, with just throw your hands up. Now, well,
0: you, you know, in, in a sense, you know, you, you, uh, you as I said, you you you, followed, you yearns to be a, a science and wants to be taken seriously by science. It's never going to happen. I mean, you know, not not in my lifetime anyway. And one of the problems is that anybody can be a ufologist. You just declare it. It's not like there's a degree for it or something or or training. I mean, there are people who certainly are deserving of the of the title if if that's what they want. People like Friedman and, and Jacques Vallée, people who have really done their homework and and brought honor and and standards to the to the pursuit. But for every one of those guys, there's ten or fifteen of these absolute nutballs who just say anything either to get attention or to make some money, or and that reflects on all of us. You know, It, it, it spills over for all of us.
1: Yeah, it's tough. But uh, now you've been really critical of ufology, and I, I totally agree with you. Uh, I'm going to say that. But do you think there's any way to, quote-unquote, save it? Or do you think it has degenerated uh, to the point now where, hey, who knows, it's going to take a whole other generation or something to fix it or something like that? Because you know, it started out pretty good with uh, James McDonald and, as you said, Jacques Vallée and Alan Hynek and stuff like that in the 60s and 70s, and then it just keeps degenerating now over the last two, three decades. Do you think there's any way to save it or or, or what?
0: Yeah, I think so. Obviously, I wouldn't still be involved in it to any degree. I mean, uh, you know, there are credible people. There's got to be some kind of standards, and I don't know what the ultimate answer is, but I think uh, Bob Bigelow here in Las Vegas had a pretty good idea when he established NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science. He put together a a world-class science review board, to oversee the operations he had uh, you know a strike force team that was ready to go at the drop of a hat to investigate cases to uh publish papers online things of that sort he funded a a lot of uh, national public opinion surveys to get a handle on what people's opinions were about about the topic and to sort of uh to isolate the areas where uh, it might be uh, might be worth pursuing. He made contacts with government agencies, had a certain amount of uh, credibility. NIDS, for a variety of reasons that we can go into later, no longer exist. But I think something like that, um, you know, was Peter Sturrock, the guy um, who had written the, the report and convened uh, some conferences, uh, uh, it had a, a right idea, the uh, SSE, society for scientific exploration those are folks who are applying uh, fairly rigorous scientific standards to evaluating the evidence they weed out uh, the bad stuff they they recognize that there's something legitimate a a, a phenomenon a, a kernel of information in this in this sea of nonsense that's worthy of investigation and inquiry and and that's the way it's got to go you're never going to get rid of the nutcases you're never going to get rid of the charlatans uh, but if you marginalize them put them to the side and give mainstream media, uh, other scientists who might be interested in this, give them an alternative, a place to turn, I think it can be saved, sure.
1: From what you're describing, it sounds like it's going to have to come from the outside of ufology, though, from people who aren't, you know, within the field or, or already sort of uh, in in the mix, if you will.
0: Probably. You know, I had hopes for that for that guy Joe Furmage, the Silicon Valley uh, millionaire. I think he ran into some uh, his own personal problems and, and didn't stick with it, but that kind of a thing. Bob Bigelow, as I mentioned, I mean, he has... Uh, incredible resources of his own and has put uh, probably more money into studying UFOs and uh, similar topics than any person in history, something like that. Yeah. It needs resources, obviously. It deserves them.
1: Yeah, that's the strange part too about ufology. Maybe because there, like you said, there's so many nutcases and the field is so saturated with people trying to make a fast buck that it turns out that the economy of ufology is kind of lousy in a way. Not, not enough yeah. good researchers get any money.
0: That's true. I mean, I don't think there are a whole heck of a lot of people, probably you can count them on, on certainly two hands, maybe one, who make a living on this stuff. Mostly it's other people who supplement it, supplement their incomes with uh, the their DVD of the month or the newsletter or the uh, Internet site or something like that. Uh, Folks like Stan Friedman, I think he does this pretty much full-time. I think Linda Howell does it full-time, but nobody's getting rich on it. I mean, when you have these profiteers who put this stuff out, and obviously it's cha-ching, it's dollar signs, um, it gives everybody else a bad name. I see no problem with people selling good stuff and giving good information to the public and and making a living at it. I tried to do that uh, when I left KLAS in the early 90s. The, The idea was to create a um, a set of programs, documentaries, good, solid information, figuring that there was an appetite for it out there. And there was. problem is we spent twice as much money producing the programs as, as we got back, so it didn't last too long. But there is an appetite for it. There is a demand and a hunger and, uh, you know, the Stephenville stuff. I mean, MUFON, has done great work on that, you know, really solid, good work. And, and it's reflected in the press coverage, the media coverage that has been generated by the kind of investigations that they've done. And I think a lot of, uh, my colleagues in, in television and, and journalism, uh, realize that there really is a story there. I wish more of them would jump into it, but, you know, it takes time, I guess.
1: Yeah. Now, in light of your Area 51 investigations, and I'm sure uh, you know a lot more than than people even have heard, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? I'm sure you've heard stuff that, you know, you kind of have to keep on the back burner or on the down low. But how much do you think the government really knows about UFOs based on, you know, what you've investigated?
0: Plenty. Um, you know you you know one of the most interesting parts of this is that there is a paper trail that that a, a reporter somebody like me can follow. I am not smart enough to figure out the cosmic implications, and in fact, ufology is no closer to those answers after fifty or sixty years. Uh, the big questions who are they? why are they here? Where are they from? What do they want? you know uh, those kind of questions we can speculate, but we really don't have any answers and i and i think the uh the, the secrecy the uh the mystery begins with them whoever they are because they you know obviously they have uh some kind of technology that we don't have abilities we don't have and if they wanted to make themselves uh known on a wide wide uh, spread basis they could do it the the proverbial landing on the white house lawn they choose not to you know we can we can certainly speculate about the reasons for that and it probably makes sense in in some regards but uh, for me, as a journalist, um, the paper trail is what's always been interesting. Those early government documents, the early studies that were never supposed to be made public, things by the, uh, the military, the Air, uh, Air Force, and the FBI, and, and different agencies that uh, really took this subject seriously, those kinds of older documents really um, paint a picture that this was a, a high matter of uh, – national security, that they did, in fact, devote resources to it, that it was a mystery, that they had ruled out uh, foreign powers and things of that sort, that they really considered uh, ETs or interdimensionals a genuine possibility. And then somewhere along the line, after the Robertson panel, the, the the cover-up happened, and ever since then, it's hard to get a straight word out of it. I think that's changing a little bit. You know, uh, this past weekend in, in Europe, these, these guys from SETI are gathering. And I mentioned it on the uh, Coast to Coast show the other night. Mm -hmm. And the European SETI guys are much more open to the idea of uh, examining and exploring the ET possibility and looking at evidence that visitors are already here as opposed to just uh, searching for radio signals from outer space, a two-pronged approach. Now, I'm sure the American guys, it'll drive them crazy. But it's it's similar to the European attitudes, uh, their governments over there. Versus our government. I mean, you know, they've opened up their files, a couple of them. I'm sure they're not uh, opening up everything they have, but they've opened up more than ours has and are willing to at least acknowledge that this is a a subject worthy of study.
1: Based on that whole idea that more is happening overseas, so do you discount the idea of a global type conspiracy, you know, amongst, uh, you know, favored nations type of thing?
0: No, I think that's possible. I think, you know, the US is the superpower. I think that we have a great deal of influence with our allies. I think that that's affected how Europe, uh, the British and the Canadians and the Australians have have approached the topic and what they've been willing to say publicly. I think there is a cover up of some sort. I'm not sure that it's uh, in government anymore. Uh, You know, if there is, in fact, hardware, which I think is distinctly possible. I think it's been, probably been moved out of places like Area 51 or Wright-Patterson. It's in the hands of industry as a further buffer from public scrutiny. Uh, maybe they had good reasons in the beginning, probably so. Uh, it would have been a disturbing time to reveal, you know, that in the late 40s, right after the war, that, uh, that uh, there are these beings visiting us, and they have all these incredible uh, machines. They can fly circles around anything we have, and there's nothing we can do about it. Understandable. Since then, though, I think you know I think the, the public is acclimated to a to do to a degree that there could be timed releases, small releases. I have no question, no doubt, that our government has a great deal of information, as Jacques Vallee has said, and Bill Moore, for example. I mean, those are the guys with the satellite systems, the sensors, the uh, the radar cameras, and and things of that sort. I mean, they've collected somewhere there's a huge storehouse of information. Um, from all these kinds of uh, technologies that we have. Civilian researchers don't have that stuff. Buffon doesn't have that stuff. The military has it. Our government has it. And and uh, every once in a while, you get a little glimpse into, into that world, and it tends to confirm your darkest suspicions. Is there a cover-up? Yeah. Is the phenomenon real? Yeah.
1: You say that uh, you think maybe disclosure – is a possibility. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like that's kind of what you're thinking. What do you think of this? To sort of piggyback onto a disclosure discussion, what do you think? We've seen a renaissance in a way of a branch of the UFO movement, which is the new exopolitics sort of scene that's come about that's pushing for disclosure. It sort of was big around the '70s and stuff, and sort of came back around again here in the turn of the millennium with exo. Now it's called exopolitics, but it's kind of the same motivations. What do you think of the exopolitics movement and then, you know, segueing that into what are your thoughts on disclosure and do you think that's a possibility?
0: Well, uh I'll start with the 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 second part first. Uh okay. I don't think our government's gonna disclose anything. I I think it's go- it's gone too far. It's too far over the edge for the US government to admit anything. Either for disclosure to happen it would have to be a whistleblower, an insider, some sort of a piece of equipment or material that could uh beyond be beyond dispute something like that our government's not going to do it certainly not this government uh, that's for sure um and uh the the reasons we could go into but uh um uh, you know I, for one thing you know use the example of area 51 uh you know i think there was technology out there from somewhere else I, i've had uh, more than two dozen witnesses in addition to lazar who've told me little bits and pieces of the story it might have been a very small group and kept uh, kept kind of secret, even for a base like that, but I think it was out there. Uh, where it is now, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me it would still be there because so many people have been out there looking for it, including congressional investigators. Uh, this government's not going to disclose it. They've told too many lies about it. Uh, I think a lot of them could go to jail for what they've done, lying to Congress, lying to the public, probably diverting a lot of legitimate uh, uh, national security program money into keeping this thing going. So, no, I don't think our government will disclose it. I think they'll fight it to the end. Could disclosure happen some other way? Well, you, you heard my opinion on that. It would have to be an outside force, and uh, a whistleblower, somebody like that hacker from uh, England who's now in all kinds of trouble he saw glimpses of something pretty interesting before he got caught.
1: Yeah, or potentially maybe some sort of uh, major crash or something that they can't cover up. And I'm going to ask you later about the Needles UFO story. But sure. uh, there's always the chance, you know, that if a UFO crashes in, in a major city or something like that, then the lid's been blown off by
0: accident. Well, it's like Whitley Streber has said, you know, when the first time I interviewed him, it was 20 years ago, and he said, look, the... the uh, they are the true architects of the secrecy. They're the ones calling the shots, and it's sort of the same thing at the uh, Skinwalker Ranch. I mean, some people get to see certain things at different times, but it's always on uh, someone else's terms. They decide who and when and where and what it is that they're seeing. We can only uh, guess about what their motives are, what their long-term intentions are, Um, you know, and then when you combine that with our own government secrecy, um you know, it, it really makes it a tough nut to crack. Absolutely. We are celebrating the 100th anniversary of this church. And that is something to shout about. Praise Amen. God. Yes. Praise yes. God. Yes. God be praised. Amen.
1: You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Yes.
0: Hey! God sent us a young man named Tim. Tim! Yes. Yes. Join your choir and help sing your song. Bless you, Tim. Now take it away, East Bronx Women's Gospel Choir with Mr. Tail.
1: Now let's talk a little bit about the Exo Now, based on what you said about disclosure, it sounds like. Um, that you know that this exopolitics movement might be a fruitless task.
0: Well, it, it is in some. It, I, I applaud them. Listen, I'm a journalist. My religion is the First Amendment. I'm all in favor of public information and the public having a right to know. That 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 is what I believe uh, to to my core, uh, and I applaud these guys for giving it a try. But I think they're barking up the wrong tree, uh, especially now. I mean, given the divisive nature of politics now and how how divided our country is, what politician is going to go out on a limb and say, I want to study UFOs. You get some that will say it here and there, but they never follow through. It's suicide. I'll tell you an experience uh, that uh, that I have uh, firsthand knowledge of is that uh, a group here in Las Vegas, and, and I've already mentioned a couple of their names, had a deal a couple of years ago. While NIDS was up running, they had some congressmen who were willing to sponsor hearings into very limited aspects of the ufo mystery very practical ones Uh, one of the questions would have been about national security Uh, are there cases that affect national security and uh, clearly there are i mean these uh, flyovers at nuclear missile bases that have been well documented uh, by our military you know they're they're very real oh and in addition to that uh, near misses with pilots i mean human lives are put in danger by these things Uh Timothy Good has written about that in his most recent book about planes crashing and and mysteries of that sort. Those were going to be the topics of two congressional hearings. When those – and the the congressmen were on board. They were going to go for it. They were going to really go out on a limb and go for it. And then within a couple of days of that agreement being reached, Stephen Greer and some of those folks had a big news conference at the uh, National Press Club. And we're uh you know demanding that the government give up the uh the secret technology that would solve our all of our energy woes and making really grandiose statements, many of which I think had no basis in fact, trying to get as much media attention as they can, demanding that they uh uh open up the doors and let us see all the secrets. Well, these guys folded in a second the the Congress folks folded they don't want any part of that. Let's say you had a hearing like that on the on Limited and important UFO topics. These guys are not going to be content if they're not invited. They're going to be banging at the door. They're going to be staging demonstrations and any congressman who went along with it would be embarrassed. Yeah. I applaud the exopolitics thing. I understand that they're, they're, passion. Stephen Bassett's a good guy and doing a good job. I think he's up against a wall and I, I think, um, it, it, you know, I wish him luck, but I, I think he's, uh, I don't think he's going to succeed because it would be political suicide for these guys to go along with it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned the other night, too, uh, on Coast to Coast, that you thought that if there was disclosure, a lot of these guys were going to getting prosecuted and stuff like that. You really think that would be the case, huh? Well, it's
0: possible. You know, Bob Bigelow disagreed with that. Maybe it's been so long that they, that they wouldn't. But I think that they've been stealing money from legitimate national security programs for a long time to do this kind of stuff. In addition, you have to discuss the idea of whether disclosure is a good idea. Now, I, as I said, I, I'm in favor of it. I, I generally... Uh, lean that direction because of my profession but we don't know what the ultimate disclosure is what is it that we're disclosing we don't know somebody knows somebody knows a lot more about it than we do and they've decided we shouldn't know and i know that the listeners to your program at coast to coast and the viewers here who watch my tv programs uh think that we're ready for it what what if it's not true what what if uh, the ultimate truth of this is in fact so disturbing that it would fundamentally alter social institutions and everything that happens on our planet. I mean, uh, we all know about the Brookings Institute report so long ago that said, uh, you know, confirmation of a, a superior intelligence would uh, would devastate social institutions, would totally mess us up. I think that that could be true. If if in fact the uh the ultimate truth is that these uh, these overlords, these ETs or interdimensionals, whatever they are, are uh, uh consider us livestock. Uh, that would be pretty disturbing if in fact it turns out that they are interdimensional people who they can see everything we do at every moment and we can't see them that'd be very disturbing yeah. that'd be very disturbing and i'm not sure that i'm not sure it's a good thing to release that just now
1: yeah and the scary part is we won't know unless we get the disclosure it's like a catch 22 so it's, it's exactly
0: scary. so you know it's at least worth Pondering, I, I appreciate the, idea, the efforts to uh, demand disclosure. If, if they were just to disclose, yes, they're here. We don't know where they're from. There'd be ramifications from that. But maybe the ultimate truth is there's something else to uh, that doesn't. It's not a good thing to disclose, at least not right now.
1: Yeah. All right. Now let's move into uh, your work with the Skinwalker Ranch, because you, of course, co-wrote the book with Colm Kelleher, *Hunt for the Skinwalker*. To start out, let's let's just talk about the other night. You said something that actually. Uh, touch an interest with me because you said the story still seems to resonate really strongly with people and I can vouch for that because we had Colem on the show a couple of years ago right after the book came out and that's still one of the most popular episodes we've ever had and people are still downloading that one and listening to it. What do you think makes the story still resonate so strongly with people?
0: Well, it's just so weird. <laughs> um, you know, UFOs, they're interesting. Uh I'm interested, everybody's interested. Uh but this is not a UFO story. I mean, this is UFOs is part of it. Because all kinds of different craft and orbs and things have been seen on this Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, but it's so much more than that. You have a location that is, uh, if there's any other place in the world like it, I haven't heard it. I mean, there are are other ranches that we investigated and, and looked into that have bits and pieces of it, but not the whole package. I mean, no place has the whole package. It's UFOs, it's poltergeist stuff, it's Bigfoot, crop circles, cattle mutilations, weird animals. Psychic phenomena, shadow people, all in one place. And it was the, it is probably the most intensely studied UFO paranormal hotspot in history, at least outside of anything we know the government has done. And, um, you know, you put all this stuff together, dimensional portals, weird, weird stuff. Yeah. It, it, it's almost like this thing, this entity, this intelligence, whatever the heck it is, the, 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 the trickster that's pulling the strings in this is telling us that all this stuff is somehow related. You know, you know, Tim, that uh, the UFO people hate the poltergeist people and (laughs) nobody gets along with the Bigfoot people. And, uh, and, uh, you know, you get abductees who are, are different and, uh, and nobody gets along in these different paranormal fields. But this seems to be telling us that all these things on some level are related. And, uh, I think that's the, uh, the basic uh, attraction for this particular case.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the big sort of overarching story that might be, might be touching a nerve in people deep down because it's sort of confirming that idea that I agree with you that I've kind of always been of the belief that they're all somehow connected, and I have observed with great amusement the <laughs> feuds between the various genres in, in the paranormal world. It's quite strange to watch. Now, we had Jacques Vallée on the show back in June And he said he couldn't really talk too much about uh, his work with NIDS and stuff like that. But I know that you've uh, done some time. Obviously, you did a lot of investigating into the Skinwalker Ranch. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences investigating it as much as you can? I don't know if you're under a contract or anything.
0: No, I'm not under a contract. It's a friendship thing is that, uh, you know, in the late 90s when those guys were there, uh, Bigelow and and some of the other folks, uh, these are friends of mine. I, I knew them, and they trusted me with information, and they would tell me some of the stuff that was happening. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And it was driving me crazy because I could not tell anyone about it. So um, eventually, when the phenomena sort of petered out, and and I think that's directly related to the fact that NIDS was there stalking whatever the heck it is, and it changed the whole social dynamic of the thing. When it petered out, I pestered uh, Bigelow and Column to let me go ahead and put something out. And they they agreed only because they hoped that uh, by publicizing it within a limited framework, that maybe additional information about other hotspots would come forward and they'd have something else to investigate. And and it happened. I mean, I printed a two-part series in a weekly newspaper here that I write for. And, man, this stuff went all over the world very quickly. And uh, and a lot of clues did come in. And then eventually I talked. I I went to the ranch the first time uh, with the intention of, of creating a video documentary at some point. And each time I've been back there, I've taken a camera and I'm still working on this thing shooting different stuff and interviews and traveling around the whole area of the uinta basin uh the documentary never happened but the book did and uh, column had agreed to go ahead and cooperate with me we we got mr bigelow's okay Uh, you know you know he's a a friend of mine i'm privileged to be one of the few people allowed on the property and i didn't want to do something that's going to screw it up so you know i i didn't need his permission but i wanted it because i didn't want to burn that bridge and and that's how it's worked out is uh you know, the book went everywhere it's caused a lot of problems because of all the trespassers and and curious people and uh, I understand that you put something out like that of course people are going to be drawn to it just like area 51 but some of them are just absolute maniacs i mean they get drunk they throw beer bottles and trash all over the place they wander around in the property go up to the house in the middle of the night and take uh, flash photos in the window and just act like complete jerks it's it's lucky that nobody's ever been shot or something out there or got into trouble um but it you know, and I'm partially largely responsible for that because we did the the book uh basically there's not many um secret stories that we haven't told uh column and I debated about what to include in the book and what not to and there's there's a lot of detail that we didn't include, but there's not any major big secret that we didn't uh put in there. Uh, for example, there was an incident related to us, uh, by a couple of the Bureau of Indian Affairs policemen, Native American policemen who travel that area and patrol it on a regular basis. And they told us about one night they came around the corner. It's a dark night. Their, their, uh, headlights are cutting through the darkness and they come up to the gravel road that leads into the ranch and there's these two guys standing there, um, wearing trench coats and their backs are to the headlights and it looks like they're smoking cigarettes. The guys are, the Indian policemen are wondering what the heck's going on. They get out of their car. Hey, what are you guys doing? And these cigarette smoker guys turn around to them and they had dog heads. Their faces were dogs wow. smoking cigarettes and they look at each other like, uh, what the hell we stumbled onto? Look back at these guys. They're gone. They walk over to the spot. The cigarettes are there, but the guys are gone. Trench coats and everything. I mean, we debated about whether to put something like that in the book because how does that make all the rest of it look? You know, the, the cattle mutilations are well documented and the other incidents are well documented. But something like that, what do you do with it? Well, in the end, we decided, we'll go ahead and put it in. People can sort it out for themselves and evaluate it for themselves. And, and so it's in there, but there is not a whole heck of a lot that's not in there. I mean, it's, it's, it's laid out. There were, you know, a lot of incidents that happened before the NIDS team got there. There were dozens of them that happened while they were there. Some of them are on video. I'm still working on the documentary. I hope to put it out one of these days. In fact, Colum and I are talking about maybe doing a second book that includes a lot of photos and things that, that were not fully explained in the first one, uh, but um, it's a one heck of a story.
1: Now, you say you're one of the few people who's been on the property, aside from these loonies and stuff, but you obviously were kind of allowed to walk around and stuff. What's it like uh, you know, just being there and stuff like that? How'd that feel? Did it feel uh, weird or anything like that?
0: Well, yeah, it's a little spooky because, you know, I'd been reading about these reports from NIDS coming in for so long and some of the things that happened to the scientists are, are not just spooky. I mean, they're threatening. I mean, whatever it was that was floating around there demonstrated a, a, a great capacity for violence. The things that were done to animals were bloody and, uh, and, and distinct and, uh, beyond dispute, you know. So something was running around there that could cause harm if it wanted to. So yeah, the well, first time I went there, it was a little spooky and, uh column had uh, we, we walked around the property, did some interviews and he showed me where many of the things had happened, um, including these creatures that would appear out of nowhere, something like Predator, like in the movie Predator that yeah. scared the hell out of people. So they they said, Look, there are some things that we do that seem to generate an activity. So they thought maybe my inherent weirdness quotient might attract something. So one of the things that you could do is uh you uh, the arrival of a newcomer. Uh you go out there on the on the range and make a bunch of noise. Which we did. Uh, we built a fire and made a bunch of noise and did some interviews, and they said the re- thing that really gets it going is if you dig in the ground. And the rancher who had bought the property had a prohibition from digging in the ground, and, and NIDS disregarded that when they got it. So we built the fire, we danced around, made a bunch of noise, and then we got an earth mover and just moved all the dirt we could, dug holes, trying to attract something. And then they took me and put me on a chair in the middle of the night in the middle of the homestead where all this bad stuff had happened, where animals had died and creatures had come out of the woodwork and and left me there. And oh, they man. figured, well, you know, George is kind of a weird guy. Maybe something will come and get him. And then they went a couple hundred yards away with a telephoto lens to watch as Bigfoot came and snatched me, which did not happen, thank goodness. And so, you know, I was a little spooked then. Since that then, I've been out there a lot of times. And, and uh you know, people who arrive the first time, It's kind of a a Rorschach test or something because a lot of them are scared. They get a very bad vibe. I get a good vibe. I've been there 12 times. I get a really good vibe. And the people who have lived on the ranch for a long time, the current caretakers, for example, they say the same thing. It energizes them. It's like there's uh, some kind of a... A field or something there that uh, that gets them going, and um, you know I haven't talked about that a lot in the in public because I don't want people going there and thinking it's some kind of a cosmic spa or something. But okay. uh, but that's generally the feeling I get now. Maybe it's my imagination. I don't know. But uh, that's that's. My answer.
1: Now you said uh, you came out with the book when things had kind of petered out and from what I understand from what Bob said the other night on Coast to Coast it sounds like things are kind of on the just sort of uh, not going on there anymore. It's sort of yeah
0: there's not nothing at all close to what uh, the dramatic events that uh, that the NIDS guys had. There have been activities and and appearances in other parts of the Uinta basin full daylight big discs seen by multiple witnesses a couple of cattle mutilations in the area but nothing on the ranch itself. Uh, you know, some of the people who are interlopers who sit on the ridges and watch say that they've seen things. I don't know. You know, I think if you travel hundreds of miles and camp out for a couple of days hoping to see something, maybe you do see something because you want to. Uh so I take it with a grain of salt. But uh because of the trespassers, since September of last year, uh last time Bob and I went to the ranch, uh we've had uh he's had uh his security guys from Bigelow Aerospace on there twenty four seven. They they take shifts these are all paramilitary guys. I mean, Delta Force guys, ex-cops. They can live in the bushes for days at a time and eat bugs and things like that. And uh, they're there all the time. And if there have been any dramatic events, I haven't heard about them.
1: Okay. Now, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. One of the big stories you've been talking about recently and, and looking into is this Needles UFO crash story. Talk a little bit about that because it's sort of just uh, just hitting the UFO culture right now in the last uh, couple months.
0: Well, uh, this is an incident that happened uh, May 14th, about 3 o'clock in the morning. An object uh, streaks out of the sky from the northeast traveling toward the southwest. Uh, a witness uh, in the area of Bullhead City, Arizona, right across from Laughlin, Nevada, is up to uh, let his cat out at 3 o'clock in the morning. He sees it. He thought it was like a plane ready to crash, and he was listening because it seemed like it just appeared over a hill right by his house, and it was going to crash, and it didn't. He didn't hear any sound. 20 or 30 miles away um, on the Colorado River near an area called Topock, south of Needles. There's a guy out on his boat fishing in the middle of the night, his houseboat, and he looks at the water, and it's illuminated with this turquoise color, and uh, looks up, and he sees this thing just as it crosses over his boat. It crash lands on on the riverbank about 100 mi- hundred yards from the, the river, and uh he doesn't actually see it, but he hears it. It goes, thump, makes this noise. He thought it was a plane crash, and he uh, pushes his boat out to a place where he can get some uh, cell phone because he's trying to call 911, think he's reporting a plane crash, and he can't get out. And then within a couple of minutes, all these helicopters appeared, uh, including a great big sky crane, military helicopters cir- circling around. The sky crane swoops down, somehow connects to the object, picks it up. It's still glowing. He said it was about the size of a like a 10,000-gallon tanker truck, and hauled it away. And all the little helicopters followed it. Uh, the next morning, uh, people in the town start getting these uh, – have these sightings with something like men in black, these strange vehicles, government plates, unmarked, lots of antennas, blacked-out windows, military-type guys showing up, looking around, asking questions, uh, surveying uh, a radio station that sort of became the hub of this story – this guy who was on the houseboat, houseboat Bob, Bob on the river, he calls in, tells his story. Uh, a lady who was there, a Democratic party organizer, she hears it. A couple of cops hear it. They go out to look at the, the surveillance that was supposedly underway and the guys in the trucks had left. Suddenly I start to, you know, Linda Howell did an interview with the guy, Bob on the river. It went on to coast to coast and then it sort of went away and I had read about it. So I went down there, poked around, met the, met the people, put it on KLAS. The story goes on YouTube, and it it caused a little sensation, a couple hundred thousand views, and um, other witnesses have come forward since, and I've been back down there several times to see if we could uh, solidify any of this. Uh, One of the things we wanted to find was these guys in these vehicles, you know, because a lot of people in that area, Needles, uh, Lake Havasu, uh, Bullhead City, say they had been seeing them going through there. So we went down a couple of weeks ago, actually like a month ago, uh, to find them. We didn't. We're on our way back to Las Vegas. I'm reading the newspaper, and my photographer is driving, and he says, man, did you see that? I go, what? Boom, there goes another one. Whoosh, right by us, this weird vehicle. Huh. We jump. We turn the car around. I fire up a camera. We catch up to the first, the second one that had passed, and I'm shooting video. The license plates get up alongside of them, blacked-out windows. Sure enough, it's just how the witnesses described it. So we catch up to the first one as well, and, and it's much bigger than the second one. Uh, Just, again, as they described it, lots of high-tech gear. These guys start talking on the radio. It's obvious they know we're there. They pull over at a way station, so we pull over in front of them, and we're standing there. We're looking at them. They're looking at us. We're shooting video. They don't know what quite to do. Uh, after a couple of minutes of that, one of the, the the main vehicle, the big one, pulled up right beside us, in, engine still running, and then it goes a few more feet, and somebody gets out, and they come over and talk to us wanted to know who we were, what we were doing. They told us to get off the road, demanded to see my ID. I said, I want to see your ID. Uh, just get off the side of the road. He, he gave me a little bit of a bad time and then um uh flashed a badge. He said, we're federal agents. Flashed a badge. I didn't get to see it. I asked to see it again. And uh it's an it's a department that I, I am familiar with, but it's not an agency I'd he- ever heard of before. He wouldn't answer any questions about it. Appealed to my sense as a patriotic American not to interfere <laughs> with what they were doing. And he said, somebody would be in touch. And I'm thinking to myself, well, hell, by the time I get back to Las Vegas, I'll have tax audits for the last 10 years or something. <laughs> I got a call Monday morning from somebody I know uh, with a um, an, an agency who told me, hey, man, you don't know what you got into and how close you were because uh these guys are real serious. And then they told me who the agency was, and we had a meeting with them, sort of an off-the-record thing. You know, the head of the agency came out from D.C., and – um gave us a unique opportunity to uh, to uh see what they do. We got to see these vehicles, and it's going to be an amazing story. Now, I'll, I'll be frank with your listeners that I don't think that these guys have anything to do with what crashed uh, near Needles, and I don't think they had anything to do with the recovery. I think the recovery is real, and I've uncovered some records to that effect, that there were helicopters in that vicinity at that time. I just don't think that these guys – we part of it. Uh, however, I do believe that uh, based on witness testimony from that area that someone was down there asking questions about it and um, sure looked like these guys, maybe operating under the auspices of something that, that purposely looked like these guys. I don't know. But anyway, uh, it's going to be a fun story. Uh, we're going to do something in early November, an update on the Needles incident, and uh, in addition, uh, do something on these, these men in black, alleged men in black. By the way, today – the place where Houseboat Bob lives was engulfed by fire. Wow. Uh, and it burned right down to the water where his boat was, and he had to be evacuated. And uh, and it burned up a lot of the area that some people might think is the place where this thing crashed. And I don't know if it was set on purpose or not, but it burned three or 400 acres. And um, it's just kind of coincidental. It's the same day that the UFO hunters, the TV program, arrived down there to start working on this story.
1: Wow, that's weird.
0: Well, coincidental, at
1: <laughs> There, yeah, there you go. Now, as I as I noted at the introduction here, you're hosting Coast to Coast every third and fourth Sunday of the month. And uh, just on a personal note, like I said, I work with you, and it's it's great to be able to get the chance to interview you. And uh, I've done a hundred episodes here, and and uh, interviewed probably seventy five, eighty people at this point. I've never interviewed someone who I respected so much as an interviewer to be on the other end of the thing. So it's great to have that opportunity. And, uh, I just wanted to know, you know, what's it like hosting Coast to Coast? And is there anyone that you'd like to interview that you haven't had the chance to interview yet?
0: Well, I love doing it. I, I wish I could do it more. I mean, George and Ian do a good job. Uh, and the more I do it, the more I respect them because it's like, sort of like riding a bull. I mean, it's, uh, it's very much audience driven and the audience knows what it wants and it's, uh, I am learned that, uh, that it is tough to please everyone because you got somebody you think is a can't miss guest and half the audience hates it and half the audience loves it and they let you know about it. Uh, it's very important to have, uh, the particip- participation of the folks out there, the listeners, because you know, they really drive, uh, what uh, the product eventually is, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. I like it, uh, uh, in some respects better than television because I can sit around in my underwear and do it. I don't have to put on a suit and tie. Uh, I don't sit around in my underwear. By the way, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want that imagery out there, but um, I like it. It's fun, and the, the fact that it's four hours—I mean, you know, TV—I love it, and they give me more time for my stories than than most people get. But it's not four hours, and for something as complicated as some of the things that we discuss, that's what you need. And you, you let the mystery unfold, and you get the listeners involved in it. It's a great experience. But you know, people ask me to do more of the shows, and. I just have to explain that I'm uh, I'm stretched pretty thin as it is, so t- two a month is about all I can handle. But it's it's great fun. Uh interviewing someone, Jacques Vallée, I uh, well, I think a year ago or so uh George Nori uh got Jacques on the program. I mean, he's the he's the guy I looked up to the most in this field. I mean, I think he's the deepest thinker. You don't have to agree with uh with his take on it. I mean, he, it's controversial in some circles. He does not uh, believe that these are ETs that These are visitors that, as he said to me one time, I'm going to be really disappointed if it turns out that the answer to this mystery is that uh, these are visitors just zipping around, coming here from some other planet. He suspects that it is something far grander and more wondrous and more complicated, and that sort of goes along with what I believe. I mean, I don't know what the answers are. I'm not a deep thinker on this stuff. The the experiences at at Skinwalker Ranch have taught me that 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 maybe – it really is something much bigger and much more profound and something that's going to take a long time for us to get our heads around. So Jacques Vallée would be the guy if if I could get him to come on the show.
1: Like you said, you got these columns in, in the uh, newspaper, and you're hosting uh, – you're doing investigative journalist stuff for KLS-TV, and you're hosting Coast to Coast, third and fourth Sunday nights of every month. So usually we ask what's next for you, but I'm sure there's a lot that's next for you. So is there anything, you know, you want to, uh, you know, plug or, or put a shout out to that's coming up that people should be looking out for?
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of options right now. I mean, there's some some very serious guys who uh, would like to revisit the the project I started in the early 90s. We went all over the world and shot a tremendous pile of information and interviews and video and we produced a couple of shows that were highly regarded programs, the UFOs, the best evidence, and and they're still out there floating around. But I shot so much more. And uh, there's some folks who have approached me about taking another stab at that, updating the material, taking a fresh look at some of these topics. And I think uh, I'm heading in that direction. We've been asked about a second Skinwalker book, which is very appealing to me. I was asked by a publisher here in Nevada about writing a book, sort of a memoir, and my the operating title I told them was like adventure, my adventures in saucer land or something like that, which <laughs> is you know sort of explain the the strange world that the, that I find myself enmeshed in and some of the interesting characters and some of the really credible and fascinating characters that I've encountered as well might be kind of a fun thing to do. Um, you know I've been um, approached about movie projects and I seem to be the kiss of death for any of those. The five that I've been a character in five screenplays have all died a horrible messy death and. <laughs> I I would like to have a better understanding of online stuff and and be able to have a a site or or something like that where I can interact with people. I'm just uh, just kind of overwhelmed in terms of uh, time management right now uh, because it's long days at at KLAS and then the newspaper and the other things. And uh, but I, uh, you know, I I'm very energized about the whole thing. I'd love to be around when this mystery is solved uh the longer it goes the the less confident i am of that, about that but that's no excuse not to keep plugging away
1: absolutely yeah you got to keep plugging away cuz uh it's a it's a fascinating story, and it could be the biggest one of all in, in a lot of ways if it turns out to be what we think it might be. Well, like I said, George, I've interviewed probably close to 80 people. We've had 100 episodes, but I've never interviewed someone who I respected so much as an interviewer and as a journalist, so it's been great to turn the tables a little bit and get a chance to interview you. I really uh, have a lot of respect for you, and and your outsider status to the UFO world as a member of the media really gives us a great perspective on things, that uh, we just can't get from a lot of people who are up to their necks in UFO stuffs. So it's been great to get your thoughts on just a whole variety of topics in the, in the world of ufology. I can't thank you enough again for coming on the show. It's been great. I look forward to uh, working with you again uh, at Coast to Coast, and hopefully we have a chance to talk again sometime in the future. Thanks, Tim. Uh, you're making me blush. <laughs> but, uh, I'll come back anytime. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4. And wraps up the 100th episode of Benal of America Audio. Big, big, super huge thanks to George Knapp for coming on the show. Tune in to hear him on Coast to Coast AM on the 3rd and 4th Sundays of every month. Definitely can't miss esoteric radio right there from George Knapp. And, of course, check out his stuff via KLAS-TV in Las Vegas. Hard-hitting and insightful investigative journalism as only George Knapp can provide. Check it out. Normally, since it is kind of a special episode, it's the 100th edition of BOA Audio in the seasonal format. I would skip over BOA Audio listener feedback, but we got so much correspondence after last week's episode with Charles Upton that I wanted to just read a sampling of some of the emails we received. Definitely One of the most talked about episodes of BOA Audio in quite some time. I was stunned by the level of feedback we got. Some of the emails were positive. Some of the emails were negative. It was really a wide spectrum of responses to Charles Upton. Let's go first with one of the positive emails. This comes from Robert in Northborough, Mass., kind of near BOA HQ. Here's what Robert has to say. Great job having Charles Upton on your show. He has a viewpoint I had not heard before. It is great when you hear something new, as it so seldom happens. I hope your feedback on this show is positive and you keep having such interesting people on with various views of esoteric ideas. I also want to thank you for letting the guests speak and make their case and having the confidence in your audience that we can think for ourselves. It is so rare that an interviewer does not spend the interview trying to show off how intelligent and wonderful they are, and using the guest as a vehicle for their ego show-off. Again, thanks for the great show this week, Robert in Northborough, Mass. There you go. That's one of the positive emails I got regarding Charles Upton. Now let's hear from the opposite point of view. Robert, you were not alone in your positive feedback, but you were also quite antithetical to some of the folks who wrote in. Let's hear now from Tyrone, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I've been listening to you since season one, and no one has rutted me in such a wrong way as the clown, Charles Upton. He said so many insane things, it would only piss me off to try and think of them. Let's just say this was not a good show, and how you kept your cool is way beyond me. That's from Tyrone, and then here's another one kind of amusing to me, so we'll include it here in the negative feedback. I have enjoyed every episode of BOA I have ever listened to, and I believe I have caught them all. However, I think Charles Upton is a wacko nutcase. He's not nearly as bright as he'd like us to believe he is, and he said the most unfair things about John Mack. He sounds like an unbalanced religious zealot. And that comes from Michelle, no hometown listed. So there you go. The feedback ran the gamut. Positive, negative. As I sort of addressed during the interview, I was particularly uncomfortable with Charles' critiques of John Mack's work. Especially, as I noted during the conversation, John Mack is not here to defend his research, but as is the case on BOA Audio, we let the guests say what they want to say, and we let the audience give the thumbs up or thumbs down on the quality of their work. And as you heard here from the feedback this week, it was ups and downs across the board from the audience, but definitely generated a response. Here is one last feedback that I found kind of amusing. I stumbled across it while looking at some of the websites that linked to the Charles Upton interview. Comes from a little forum by the name of ufoevolution.com. Somebody posted a link to the Charles Upton interview, and then one disgusted listener had this to say, the soundtrack of Upton speaking is equal to the music being played. Man, I hate that. You've got to make a conscious effort to eliminate the background music from the man speaking. That's from Carol, one of the posters there at ufoevolution.com. Carol, relax. It's just the intro music. You don't need to concentrate or spend an inordinate amount of time trying to decipher what the guest is saying. Sometimes, you know, I do a pretty good job on the mix. Other times, I'm sitting there wondering if folks are going to have to do what you just said, and that's make a conscious effort to try to eliminate the background music. But at the end of the day, let's all just take a deep breath, relax, get through the intro music, get through me talking at the beginning of the show, and then you'll be able to hear the guest speak unencumbered by any music. But it did kind of amuse me, because those are the sort of things that I worry about when I'm putting the episode together, and so when I saw that, it kind of brought a wry grin to my face, even though it was a bit of a biting critique of the program. For the record, Carol did get through the intro music and enjoyed the episode, so there you go. If you'd like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, you have insights into this week's episode or previous episodes, you have questions about the program, or you have guest suggestions, there's a simple way to get in touch with me and become a part of BOA Audio listener feedback. For starters, you can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, or you go to binallofamerica.com, america.com, and click the contact button. It can be found just about on every page at BOA. That'll take you to the contact information. Meanwhile, if you want to get even more interactive, you can go to the official Binallo of America forum, www.theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Check it out. There's always something cooking at the US of E, and we'd love to have you as part of our little community there. There you go. So I'm easily accessible. Drop me a line, and we'll work you into the BOA Audio listener feedback. No worries there. And I look forward to hearing from all the great listeners of the program. Now, since it is the 100th episode, I do just want to emphasize once again my humble and sincere thanks to all of the great BOA Audio listeners. As you heard on some of those feedbacks, some folks have been around since the very beginning. They've caught all the episodes. Some folks just discovered the show in the past year as our influence and popularity has grown. I welcome those folks as well and thank them for becoming a part of our great BOA Audio listening audience. Despite what I teased at the end of the program last week, there is no clip show here at the end of the show this week Just simply ran out of time, ran up against the clock once again. It's a never-ending battle here at BOA HQ to meet deadlines and continually be producing upcoming episodes. For now, I guess you'll just have to suffice with the special introduction we had to this week's episode, which featured almost every guest we've had doing the BOA shout-out at the end of the program. A few slipped through the cracks, and we didn't do the BOA shout-outs for Season 1, but... That's a pretty good cross-sampling of the wide variety of guests we've had on the program. And listening to that and putting it together and looking back on the show, it's just amazing to me how many fantastic guests we've featured on this program. I can't thank them enough, whether they're the A-list superstar guests or the up-and-coming esoteric researchers that you're just hearing about for the first time on the program. Standing alongside the audience, the guests are the backbone of this program. As I tell every guest before we start doing the interview, the audience is tuning in to hear you. They don't care what I say. They don't even want to hear me. They want to hear you. You're the star of the show. So feel free to talk as long as you want and add as much detail as you want to your answers because that's what listeners want to hear. I am just the conduit to put it all together And I humbly thank all the great BOA Audio listeners and the previous BOA Audio guests for making this program what it is. As I said at the beginning of the show, I am stunned that we've put together 100 episodes. And uh, I'll just raise my glass and say here's to 100 more BOA Audio episodes in the future. Time now, as usual, for the thanks portion of the program. Big, big, super huge thanks to the enlightening and illuminating and Infamous Benal staff. They are Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. All of the BOA staff has been doing some outstanding work at the website. You definitely want to check out their columns. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, there's always something cooking at Benal of America. We are not just an esoteric podcast series. We are a multifaceted cornucopia of paranormal delights. banallofamerica.com Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. I always hate to do this part of the show, but of course it is the time of the program where I have to turn around and ask all the great listeners who've stuck with us here to the very end of this week's episode for donations to the BOA franchise. As I'm sure you know by now, you've just heard the 100th episode of VOA Audio in the seasonal format. 100 episodes. I can't even fathom how much that has cost to put together total, but I can assure you it's not cheap. The bandwidth, the phone calls, the hosting, the time put into creating all these episodes, it's a considerable expense, and it comes out of my pocket with help from the VOA Audio listeners and readers. ...who make donations. How do you make donations? That's really, really surprisingly simple. You just go to banalofamerica.com, click the PayPal button, and make a donation. Believe me, I know as well as anyone that we are going through some serious financial times here in the U.S. and across the world. I know some folks are barely getting by. They're living month to month, and they definitely cannot afford to go making donations to underground esoteric audio programs... But I also know there's some folks out there who are doing all right who can afford to make a donation, and I turn to them and ask them to do their part in keeping BOA Audio and Banal of America up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Next week on the program, we're going international once again. We're going to reach out 8,000 miles across the globe to talk Hong Kong and Chinese ufology and exopolitics with Neil Gould founder of Exopolitics Hong Kong we're going to find out about what the ufo scene is like over in that part of the world why it seems like famous cases don't date as far back as in the US and other parts of the world the dangers of exopolitics in China government military and media perspectives on ufos the latest happenings in Hong Kong with regards to spectacular UFO sightings and ongoing growth of public awareness to the UFO phenomenon, and tons and tons more. It's a real culture shock of an episode and an enlightening and fascinating look from someone on the ground providing a one of a kind perspective on a very mysterious realm of global UFO studies, Hong Kong and Chinese ufology and exopolitics, with Neil Gould next week on BOA Audio Season 4. On that note, we wrap it up here for the week. Once again, big, big thanks to George Knapp for coming on the show, and huge, huge from the bottom of my heart, thanks to the great BOA Audio listeners. 100 episodes, I can't believe it, but now let's put it in our rearview mirror, head towards the holiday season, and get ready to roll on with BOA Audio Season 4. Fantastic episodes in the pipeline for you coming down the pike. And to all of our great American listeners, hope you're having a fantastic Thanksgiving holiday. Be safe out there, my friends. Until next week, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.